You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. Our scripture lesson today comes from the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. Just a brief bit of context before we jump into the the reading. Uh, The first is the bigger picture context. Uh, In the New Testament, you may be familiar, but in case you're not, it begins with the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, telling the story of the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then most of the second half of the New Testament is a collection of letters, many of them written by the Apostle Paul, letters to churches and to individuals. But right between those two main collections, the Gospels and the letters, is this one unique book, the book of Acts, which is sort of a uh, church history telling the story of the first few decades of leadership in the church. The main character, the protagonist in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit who is at work calling the shots, directing the mission and ministry of these early church leaders. We meet folks like Peter and Paul and, and uh, Stephen, but it's the Holy Spirit who's the one making the decisions, making the action of spreading the church throughout the Mediterranean world occur. Our story today from the ninth chapter, we pick up with the life of Saul or Paul as we know him sometimes. Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul is his Greek name, and Paul describes himself in his letters as earlier on in life being a great persecutor of the church. He was trained in the tradition of the Pharisees. He was a biblical scholar, and he was quick to use Scripture as a weapon against the early church, trying to prevent the spread of these, this movement of folks following Jesus and claiming that he was the crucified and risen Lord. That is until the fateful day when Paul was riding along the road heading to Damascus, just before our Scripture reading today. On the road, Paul has a vision which knocks him off his horse, causes him to go blind, a vision of the risen Christ who appears to him and says, essentially, stop being a jerk to my friends. And Paul listens. Paul is humbled by having his sight taken away from him. And he, in just the verses before we pick up reading today, ends up being led into Damascus where he encounters a leader in the church there, a man by the name of Ananias. And Ananias lays his hands on Paul, prays for him, and he's able to see again and then is baptized. So Paul very quickly joins the Christian church through baptism and takes that fervor that he was using to oppose the church and as we see this morning, begins using that to spread the good news of the Christian faith with everything at his disposal. So with all of that set up, let us listen for the word of the Lord in Acts chapter 9. For several days, Paul was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked Jesus' name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? 
Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. After some time had passed, the religious leaders of the Jewish people plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him brought him to the apostles and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him and how in Damascus Paul had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. And so Paul went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and argued with the Hellenists, but they were attempting to kill him. When the believers learned of it, they brought Paul down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up. Living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the verses just before our scripture reading, we have this profound conversion moment in Paul's life. But then in the scripture we just read, we come across a different kind of conversion, not of an individual, but of a community. You see, when Paul goes so quickly from being a persecutor of the church to an early member, most of the other folks, both in Damascus and in Jerusalem, don't trust him. They're suspicious. We saw what this guy has been doing. He's been hauling off our leaders. He's been arresting and persecuting those in our group. And now he shows up claiming to be one of us? Surely this must be a trap. And so they are very fearful, very distrusting. They, the early church, has to be converted into welcoming Paul. And as we see today, it takes one person stepping forward to make that happen. His name is Barnabas. We're told earlier when we first meet Barnabas in the book of Acts that his name means son of encouragement. And that's exactly what he does. He encourages Paul to stick to his calling, but he also encourages this early church in Jerusalem to welcome Paul in. Barnabas, in the years that follow, becomes a mentor to Paul. He continues to be an encourager of his calling to proclaim the good news and goes along with him on many missionary journeys. That role of mentor, someone who encourages your call, that mentorship requires a great deal of trust. Trust on the part of the mentor with the person being mentored. Trust that they won't embarrass them. Trust that they've got what it takes. But it also requires a level of trust and vulnerability on the part of the one being mentored. To not just assume what I know is best, but to listen to the wisdom of someone who's gone before me. Ultimately, though, both parties have to rely on trust 
in God. Trust that the Holy Spirit is up to something in this kind of relationship. Mentors, true mentors in life, in our professions, in the faith, are rare to come across. And when we find them, they are special and they can be life-changing. My own life has been nurtured through some mentorships, especially in ministry with those who've gone before me in previous generations. But that's not just the role of the mentors are not just important for the role of pastor, but for all of us. All of us are called, we say, every time we gather around the waters of baptism, all of us are called in these waters to the lifelong walk of discipleship. And there are many people that God puts in our lives to serve as mentors in that walk. Think just for a moment about who some of those most important mentors in your own life might have been or might still be. Maybe some teachers, some coaches, Sunday school teachers, pastors, maybe colleagues or coworkers, maybe parents or grandparents. I understand just a few weeks ago, this church celebrated the confirmation of 28 young people. Thanks be to God. In many churches, the confirmation process includes a mentoring relationship where you're paired with someone who's, who's been through the ropes a time or two in the life of the church, who's going to walk with you, not only in that year of confirmation preparation, but also for the life of faith to come. In my home church down in Alabama, there's a story that's critically important that we retell occasionally about a young woman who had gone through the confirmation process and had a great relationship with her mentor. And then years later, four or five years later, when she was a senior in high school, her family experienced a great tragedy and her father was no longer a part of the picture. And yet it was time to do the ritual of driving to visit colleges and figuring out where she might go in the next chapter of her life. And when her family couldn't go with her, it was her confirmation mentor who said, get in the car. You've already got the appointment. We'll drive seven hours, spend the night, do the visit, and drive back. That young lady ended up attending that college. She's now a Presbyterian minister, by the way, uh, and her, she will tell you that it was that experience of the mentoring relationship of her confirmation mentor representing the baptismal promises of the whole church that helped her to hear loud and clear the role of intergenerational ministry in the life of the church. That intergenerational flow from, from one generation to the next, that happens, of course, naturally and normally, but it doesn't always happen intentionally. We see here in the book of Acts an intentionality around the mentoring relationship. Barnabas, the encourager of call, goes out on a limb for Paul, brings him in to the faith, but then he continues with him for years to come. There's this really interesting move that the narrator in the book of Acts makes that you would miss if you didn't slow down to really catch it. In the early years of Paul's ministries. He's going out on these missionary journeys. The narrator describes Barnabas and Paul went here. Barnabas and Paul went there. Barnabas and Paul did this. And then without making any big show about it, 
in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, all of a sudden, the order that the narrator uses for their names swaps. It's not Barnabas and Paul, it's Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas go here. Paul and Barnabas do that. Ultimately, Barnabas takes a step back and Paul begins going on his missionary journeys without his mentor. There's an intentionality at play in Barnabas's mentoring and encouragement of Paul as the new great leader in the church. That mentoring happens often, but not always intentionally. When I think about this role of mentors in the life of the faith, I think to one of my favorite quotations from a great Presbyterian church historian and college president, John Kirkendall, who once said, our memories become the mentors of our hopes. Our memories become the mentors of our hopes. What we have experienced in the past gives us a glimpse of what God is doing, and we're able to place our hope for the future in that mentored memory. Our memories become the mentors of our hopes. At Presbyterian College, we tell one of our memories over and over and over again. It's the story of how PC was founded in the first place. It goes all the way back to the 1860s when a young man named William Plumer Jacobs, we read his words for our prayer for illumination today. William Plumer Jacobs graduated from Columbia Seminary when it was still down the road in Columbia. And just before the Civil War ended, he found himself called to be the pastor of this small church in this small town of Clinton with no prospects, no hopes, no vision for the future. In his diary, he records some of his prayers to God, and early on in his ministry, he prays to God, if nothing changes, God, call me somewhere else, somewhere bigger, somewhere more important. Surely, after a couple years, God, you're going to use me for something great, so just get me out of this town with no prospects as fast as you can. But then, memories mentored a new hope for him. See, William Plumer Jacobs' own mentor in ministry, as well as his mother, had both been orphans. And now, as a result of the casualties from the Civil War, the state of South Carolina was filled with a great number of orphans. And so, Dr. Jacobs and the congregation of First Pres Clinton responded to this need by founding an orphanage, the institution we now know of today as Thornwell Children's Home. They founded this place to give a hope for children who in that day would have had very little. But the story doesn't end there. After Thornwell gets founded, five years later, as these young people are growing and thriving and succeeding in school, and they're graduating from high school, and they're ready to head off to college, but there are no parents in the picture to pay their tuition, Dr. Jacobs, the congregation of First Pres, Clinton does what faithful, entrepreneurial Presbyterians have done for years. They find a way where there seems to be no way because they trust that God is in charge. So if we can't send these kids off to college, we'll just found our own right here on the grounds of the orphanage. That's what they did. 
And that small college initially made up of, of children from Thornwell, and then they invited in some, some other local folks who paid tuition, and then soon Presbyterians from all around the southeast were sending their kids there. And it grew and grew and thrived and thrived until it got so big it had to move all the way across the street <laughs> and became the institution we now know of today as Presbyterian College. That memory, our founding story, that memory of service, education, and faith has stayed for us the mentor of our hopes, our current vision, our future hopes, our strategic plan moving forward are rooted in those core traditions of service, faith, and education that were part of our founding story. Our memories become the mentors of our hopes. I feel very humbled to be saying that here in this space, in this sanctuary, with this congregation, because you already know what it means to be a mentoring community, a community that encourages the call, not only of one another, but beyond. Our relationship at PC with First Pres stretches all the way back. There were members of this church involved in the founding and the, and the earliest days of the college. And then decades later, in the midst of the Great Depression, when PC was questioning whether they were gonna be able to keep their doors open or not, they leaned on the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg, Henry Wade DuBose, who came to serve as the chair of the Board of Trustees and helped guide PC through those tumultuous years of the Depression. And then a few years, a few decades later, in another time of great of great uh, uh, shift in culture in the 1960s. It was another senior pastor here at First Pres Spartanburg, Dr. Mark Wiersing, who was called to leave this pulpit and go become the president of Presbyterian College. And then a few decades later, in the midst of the mid-90s, it was the faithful vision of this congregation working with Presbyterian College's leadership to respond to a need to form leaders for the church that the Celtic Cross church leadership ministry was created. Many, many young people have come through that program, myself included, and have helped find our call, discover our call. Some of us going on to seminary and becoming pastors, but all of the graduates going into congregations to serve as encouragers of call for the next generation maybe as Sunday school teachers, as elders, as deacons, as youth advisors, I've got a suspicion that some of them have even ended up as confirmation mentors, maybe in this very church. Our memories become the mentors of our hopes. What God has done faithfully for us in the past gives us trust that God will keep on doing those sorts of things in the future, in our future. Friends, in a moment, we'll prepare to gather around the Lord's table to celebrate this sacramental meal. And this table, too, is all about that holy intersection of memory and hope. Our memories as the body of Christ, our memories of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ give us hope, mentor our hopes for this day and for the days to come. In our own community, of faith in congregations, but also in the mission and ministry that reaches far beyond our walls. Our memories 
become the mentors of our hopes, and we are encouraged to follow our call to be the body of Christ for a world that desperately needs to hear those words of encouragement and to be mentored in hope. To God alone be all honor and glory now and forever. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. We give you thanks that in the waters of baptism you have claimed us and called us. We give you thanks for those who have lived lives of encouragement, helping us to sense our call and to follow it. We give you thanks for communities of call, communities of encouragement. We give you thanks for the holy memories in your son, Jesus Christ, that mentor our hopes for years to come. Amen.